Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm James Gill. And I'm Steph McKenna. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. In this episode, we speak to Cueve McDonnell about humour. Cueve is a comedian and writer. He's written for TV shows such as Mock the Week and Have I Got News for You. He was also a professional stand-up comedian and has written a dozen books under the names Cueve and C.K. McDonnell. We were initially going to speak to Cueve about world building and setting in fantasy fiction, but after reading as much uh, of his 2021 book, The Stranger Times, as I could, I changed my mind. Uh, It's not that the book isn't fantastical, it's just really funny. Being funny in fiction is hard, so we wanted to ask the Manchester-based Irishman how to do it, or at least how he does it. The cover of The Stranger Times says, What if the weird news was the real news? An apt way to describe the premise. The book is the first in a series of novels set in Manchester, in which the weird phenomena of the 14 times is alive and well, from mythical beasts to UFOs. We get to explore this weird world through the staff and the namesake newspaper, and the result is a Pratchett-esque treatment of the supernatural thriller mystery genre, and it is funny. Some things are easier to teach than others. You might argue that being funny is the hardest thing of all. Nonetheless, the conversation will hopefully give you some insights into how to bring humour to your writing. The conversation covers characters, dialogue, conflict, genre, and the inversion of expectation. Don't forget, if you're Googling Queeve, his name is spelt C-A-I-M-H, or you can search for C.K. McDonald as well. And so, without further delay, we bring you Queeve McDonald. Queeve, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Um, I th- I've really enjoyed your. Um, I've, I thought I'd read a few for a few pages of The Stranger Times, um, and actually I just end up really loving it. So I'm about 150 pages in. So I'll try not to do too many spoilers if we if we do sort of um, draw reference reference to your book. Um, and the initial conversation with your with your publisher was that it was. Um, maybe we could talk about fantasy and I like fantasy and sci-fi. Maybe we could do mm. a sort of conversation about setting and world building. But as I started to read it, I was like, this is really funny. Um, and then I found out a bit more about you and your professional background. So I thought this is uh, an opportunity too good to miss to talk about how do you write funny? How do you, how do you write funny in fiction? So um, I wondered uh, if in, if you give us a bit of a potted history of yours, because I think that's important um, to kick off with, you know, your, your writing for TV, your stand-up and, and so on careers. If you tell us a little bit about that. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, basically, um, I came to London from uh, Dublin in like 2000. Uh, basically, I got a six months of comment from my office because I wanted to try uh, stand up and I was terrified to do it in Dublin. You could obviously do it in Dublin, but I was terrified. I wanted to do it somewhere no one, no one would know me. So I came over to London and I did like a course in doing stand up and a course in doing sitcom because I'd written a I'd written a radio play for Irish radio because it was the only avenue for somebody with no experience to get something out. So I wrote a funny radio play, uh, which went in for something called the PJ O'Connor Award, where it was a finalist and it got beaten by a play where an egg, a spoon and an egg cup were having a conversation. I mean, you can't you can't compete with that word for entertainment. Um, I remember that you go, yeah, maybe I'm not the right person for this competition. Um, so I was kind of looking for something and I came over and I did courses and I sort of... Um, I started doing stand-up, uh, and I speak ridiculously fast anyway, as you probably figured out by now. But I think my first six or seven gigs, I was probably speaking at the speed of a fax machine, having a mental, mental breakdown. Um, <laughs> but um, bizarrely, there was American students in one in one of those shows, and I think they just found it hilarious, so they were laughing. So I thought I was good at stand-up. So I, I went back to Ireland, uh, packed up my stuff, got a job back in London, moved over. And then after about three years, I went full-time in stand-up, and I got into TV writing and things. And then the part of history is... Um, I was a stand-up up until 2019. Um, for the last few years, uh, good friends of mine, Sarah Milliken and Gary Delaney, I was supporting them on tour. Um, and I was sort of half on and half off the circuit because I started writing books uh, 2016. Is that right? Yeah. The 20, basically, because I, I wrote a funny book. Um, after I, I should all the TV stuff, I did loads of, loads of sitcom pilots, that I I written a lot of sitcoms that were never never got optioned but never got made. I went through that a lot. Um, in hindsight, I genuinely think when I started writing a book, while I wouldn't admit it to myself, I was probably punch drunk uh, at that point where I'd been through the process with TV so many times and had so many 
like knockbacks and stuff that we thought was getting made that didn't get made and stuff that um, I think I needed to do something different. I mean, one of the, like I worked with, I was lucky enough to work with Craig Cash and Phil Mealy, who people might know from uh, the Royal Family and with Caroline, obviously. And they did early doors of the two of them. And um, we had stuff that almost got like, we thought something was, I remember Radio 4 at one point asked us to resubmit something, which was really odd, but they asked <laughs> the next year, said, could you put that in again? And we were like, why were they, but well, they must, they decided they wanted because they said at the time, oh, we love it, but it's clashes with something else. And they said, could you put it in again? And they thought, oh, well, let's get made. Um, and then I can remember it was the first time I heard Craig Cash swear, and he's very good at it. Um, when, when they um, they said second time around, I said, oh, yeah, no, thanks. It's like, what was the point of? I, I would say exactly what he said, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Correct. Sorry, Grieve, let me hop in there. So you started writing in 2016 because looking at your website, there's like a dozen books that you've written since 2016. Yeah, yeah. My first book came out on August 30th, 2016, which was my 41st birthday. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, basically, we I wrote A Man at One of Those Faces, which is a comedy crime thriller. I started doing a master's in MMU in creative writing, and I'm really going to finish that one day. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I started doing it because I wanted to write I had an idea for a thriller. And I started trying to write it and I realized I've no idea how to write prose. I would literally spend not only had I... Um, had I written lots of scripts over because I was I did a lot of kids TV and stuff. There was loads of different kids TV programs. I got a um we actually created a I actually created a cartoon series called Pet Squad that got BAFTA nominated and everything. Um, but unfortunately didn't go any further because the Canadian company that was involved in it went broke. Um, because getting something together, a cartoon series in five countries, it's literally easier to start a war than it is to get a cartoon series <laughs> made. And that is not a word of a lie. Um and yeah, so I went through all that. So, you know, I had a good, a good career in kids TV and stuff like that. Um, but the yeah, the adult stuff, which always sounds weird having described it like that once you've said kids TV, because it does sound like you're written porn. For the record, <laughs> I haven't written porn. I'm not sure anyone actually does. Um, it's, 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 I think it's more of a very much a mood board at best. Improv, but yeah, just yeah, yeah, not, not a lot of improv. And yeah, yeah, maybe some storyboarding at a very highest level, but I doubt it. Um, so, um, yeah, I'd done all that stuff. And then I, I had a thriller idea. Um, and I've never written that book, by the way, either. But I, I basically started doing um, what I really loved when I did the thing was the workshops where you went, you all came in and brought a bit of your writing and stuff. And because I was doing stand up, I was more flexible than most people with day jobs. So what happened was, as these things happen, of course, is people get busy and they haven't got stuff for the workshop next week. So we ended up putting my stuff in again. So we ended up doing my stuff because it filled in gaps because I was writing all the time because I started. And I'm always amazed by this when people start to write novels. I'm always amazed. People go, yeah, I'm writing a novel. I'm like, have you written short stories? No, I just thought I'd write a novel. It's like, I I mean, people do it and fair play to you. But it honestly strikes me as going, yeah, I'm going to run a marathon. Have you done like 10 Ks? No, no, I just thought I'd start running a marathon next month. Because I I remember looking at books, really clearly looking at books. No, those things are massive. I couldn't write one of those. It's, It's like hundreds of thousands of words in those things um and i started writing short stories i wrote about seven or eight or something and then i started writing another short story um and it's weird i can remember the exact moment i realized i was writing a short story that was a novel because it was all about a guy who visits people in hospital who have alzheimer's or similar stuff that was the idea and i had literally a man at one of those faces i had the title and it was like the idea was he spent his whole life being confused with other people and he finds a way that this is actually beneficial where he visits people and just pretends to be who they want them to be. Um, because at the time, I think I had relatives and stuff and it was a thing. So I was aware of and genuinely in those situations, people find it hard to visit relatives. I don't know if you've ever experienced it with, with mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But weirdly, the best thing to do is you just roll what they tell you. And I think that was in my head. So I had the idea of that. But I thought I was writing and then went, well, this is this is there's no story here as such. It's just the idea of a thing. And then I remember where I was sitting. It was in the MMU library when someone went, one of these people tries to kill him. Um, and that was the whole, and then literally huge chunks of the book. I was scribbling it down furiously because then this, then this, then this, one of those real eureka moments. And I, I didn't intend to write a short a, a novel. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll write it as a practice. That was the idea. So I wrote it and um, myself and my wife really liked it. And um, we sent it out. I always remember we went off on our honeymoon because he got married like six months before. We went off on our honeymoon after submitting it to agents. Three days later, an agent came back and said she loved the first few chapters and wanted to see the rest of it. 
And we were like, brilliant, here comes the bidding war. There's going to be a frenzy. Um, no other agents got, got in contact with us. And that agent, in hindsight, we're pretty sure was checking if I knew anyone famous who was a comedian who wanted to write a book. Um, <laughs> certainly that's, that's, that's the idea we got from that meeting. And we literally, this is how bad it got. I've said this before, but we paid, and never do this, folks, but we paid an agent to read it. Um, and he came back and said it was too funny and too Irish. Um, yeah, yeah, literally. That was, what is too funny though? What is too funny? No, too well. That was it. Too funny and too Irish because it's a crime book. People don't like funny and crime. Um, and I, I remember literally the conversation where I was sitting in the spare room of our old flat and I was going. And they said that's too funny and too Irish. And then I sort of paused. He went, "You have to take criticism, obviously, in this this thing." And I went, "See, the problem I'm having is I don't think you've made any there <laughs> because those two things literally paid for the building I am currently in." Um, so I like which you got annoyed, and we went and we had this very negative attitude towards self publishing, which I'm sure a lot of people still now listening to this do. But we just got so annoyed and went, "All right." we're doing it. This is ridiculous. We're doing it. And, and then my wife, bless her, then sort of got hold of it. And we sort of put it out. Some people liked it, but then um, Elaine just started trying to get the word out. And she's, she's a PR marketing background. And um, so we did that. And then fast forward, that was the first, has now become known, the Dublin Trilogy, which has just had the seventh book come out in it, um, is the infuriatingly numbered Dublin Trilogy, which is going to end up being like, probably 15 20 books because i really like writing them, so i'm not i've no intention biggest tip i can give you in this podcast folks do not ever put a number on your series never do that if i could go back and tell myself to not call it the dublin trilogy i would be i'd be so much happier or make our marketing so much easier so yeah i ended up and and um they sort of things built and then the second book people enjoy and then it just starts and then okay. i'm now with penguin as well for my other books which we can come on to well penguin transport well, that's I'm, I'm really interested to sort of to explore the difference between uh, stand up writing and stand up comedy and written humor, because I watched your stand up on, on YouTube oh, and God. I've read, you know, I've read enough of, um, of your book to know that obviously there it, it's you, but the, the style it's not. And again, the word joke gets kind of misused a lot um, in, 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 in stand-up. But I'm just keen yeah. to, for you to describe maybe the difference between your stand-up style and your written humour style. Yeah, sure. I mean, stand-up, there is a clock in your head. Stand-ups will tell you this, depending on what the gig is like, like 30 seconds to a minute, you need to be getting a laugh. You need to be grabbing that audience. Um, and that is there throughout. You can't let things go... It varies from like if you're in a club, you need to keep their attention focused all the time. Frankly, weirdly, more and more recently because audiences are losing their attention span. It's an interesting thing after the pandemic. I gave up before the pandemic, but you, you, like there, weirdly, there was a thing a few years ago where someone was looking at their phone. You could uh, rip into them as a comic for thing. Now, honestly, you, you give out to someone for being on their phone and half the audience is like, well, why wouldn't they be on their phone? It's so, yeah, it's a different thing. So, I mean, it varies. Like if you were doing it, if I was like tour support with Gary and Sarah, which was always great shows, you had more time because they're people who are more in a theater setting and they're more focused and more polite, frankly. Um, and then if you're the main person they came to see, like if you're Stuart Lee, you can deliberately drag things out. But generally you have a clock in your head most comics will tell you this there's a clock in your head you've got to keep things bang 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 so even if you're doing stories you have to have the laughter points along the way and um, my stand-up when it when it was at its best was i was doing stories um i was doing like four or five minute stories um and i loved doing them and those are things i liked doing and i felt more and more but um frankly that's hard to do um i'm not the greatest public speaker in the world for a man who was a stand-up comedian for 20 years this is a weird thing to admit to but it's absolutely true i speak too fast my, my wife says you know you have a tendency to not finish thoughts you literally your brain is going far racing ahead of your mouth and your mouth's going so fast anyway to keep up with it that you can lose an audience very quickly um so i like yeah it was all these things that basically limited me as a stand-up frankly i mean i good career as a stand-up i've been given out to my mates in my for, for since i've left stand-up you know you're like sort of implying you weren't very like you were a professional for you know 20 years you you, you had a reasonably good grasp of what you were doing but yeah so but i but frankly i'm a i'm a better writer than i am a stand-up so but stand-ups it's it's more immediate um i mean i always i've, I've never stand-ups an absolutely brilliant thing and people who, when they do it at the really highest level, it's incredible. It's an amazing thing. If you've been in a truly great stand-up gig, and I don't mean like we've all been in sort of theatres, we've seen a very good show, but I've been in rooms where I've seen people do stuff and it just takes the whole room away. And it's usually, and it's always better in smaller 
venues. Mm-hmm. Frankly, arenas and stuff are are not good venues for for stand up. I've seen uh, I saw Joe Lyson as, as a mate of mine do the arena in Manchester recently, and he did a brilliant job. But he he found a way of doing an arena. And frankly, the man has such enormous natural charisma that he can make an arena feel like they're in a room with him, a small room with him. And it's a very impressive and underrated thing. And um, frankly, in his case, from the get go, he always had that. I can remember doing a new material gig with Joe Lysett. Um, Sarah has her own new material gig, Sarah Millican, and Joe was on it because they're all sort of work together. And I'm sitting at the back with myself and Gary Delaney were flatmates for like 15 years. And we were looking at Joe and Joe's a brilliant comic. So this isn't any criticism, but Joe said himself, he hadn't got much going up. Um, but within 30 seconds, the audience loved him so much. Myself and Gary go, just, just watch them. They're desperate to like anything he says now. And like, we're going, cause like, you know, we all have various degrees of natural charisma. Both of us, they're going, how is this even like, just, that's just Joe. People have that thing with him, um, which is amazing. And obviously people like Sarah and stuff have that too. Um, different types of it and stuff, but yeah. So, but stand-up generally is much more um, immediate and the joke is the point. Whereas um, I think with writing prose, you don't do jokes for a start. Um, There are funny lines in there, but they come out of character and they come with the story. And that's that's sort of what I was I was going to say is um, I don't have quite the the technical be able to break those things down. Obviously, you mentioned Stuart Lee there and the sort of long drawn out stories. Um, you know, humour comes from that. But the bits sort of highlighting the bits that I just that made me laugh when I was reading were not they weren't what you would call a joke. You're right; they came from sort of from from character. And so that really is my next question: is um, where does where does the funny come from what aspects of uh when you're when you're writing does it come from is it setting because the setting of, of the stranger times is funny i think you know I, I won't be spoiling it to say that um and it says on the uh, on the cover what if the weird news is the real news so you know the 14 times um imagine if all of the stories in the 14 times were real like and set it in a very naturalistic setting and then it's all this sort of um you know fantastical things that's funny you can see that the humor is going to come from that um, but there, I, I mentioned there are other areas in which you feel jokes, or sorry, again, not jokes, humour coming from character or from setting. Or um, talk us through a bit of the bits where where do you know when the the funny is coming when you're writing? Um, I'm probably going to give you what's ultimately going to be a very annoying annoying answer. Before I get to that, though, I will tell you my single biggest thing I always say about these things, and I, I it it really um, I think it's really key. Comedy is not a genre of prose writing. That's my big thing. Um, you are telling, like I tell a crime story or in the in the bunny, the Dublin Trilogy bunny books, et cetera. In the Stranger Times, they're sort of paranormal crime, but they're they're paranormal. That's the genre. I think comedy is a style of storytelling. Yeah. And why that's an important definition is you have to be telling the story. If you're trying to just be funny, and I've read a lot, because I when I was doing research and all, I read a lot of books, and there's some great ones, obviously, but when they get annoying. It's when someone is just trying to be funny and it comes across as someone doing exactly that, just trying to be funny. And people say like Douglas Adams. Yeah, they're mad. Brilliant things. are, But there is a key story. You are following story and there are characters and they remain consistent. And like, for example, in Douglas Adams books, you can pick out all these lines that are amazing. They're amazing because of who said them and they couldn't be given to another character and make the same thing. So what makes it is you have the story and more importantly, you have the characters and it's the character saying stuff. For example, genuinely, like, our reviews and all have been lovely for the Dublin books and all that. But we did a survey, uh, I think, last year where we asked the fans of the books, because we've got like 17 or 18,000 people on a mailing list now, what's your favourite funny line? Um, what was really interesting was almost none of them came back with anything. We thought, oh, there's all these quotable lines we should put on a poster. There is no, because one of the lines out of funny, and out of context, isn't that funny. The one that won was, um, he has no appreciation of the fundamentals of the game. That makes no sense to you now because you haven't read those books. But that's the one that people who have read the books want on a T-shirt. Literally, we get emails <laughs> all the time. Can we have no appreciation of the fundamentals of the game on a T-shirt and on merchandise? And it makes no sense. But in the context of a 12-year-old little tubby kid who's the assistant manager of a football team or hurting team, rather, it makes sense to people and people love that character because that's the point. They like the character. Character is what builds these things. So you have to develop the characters. And the thing is, they aren't just there for jokes. The characters are not receptive. You know, they are fundamentally real three-dimensional people, but they have these funny things that come out 
because of who they are and the situation they are in. Um, yeah. And is that, that's, I guess I'm, I'm looking down again at my, my list of the, the characters who are, uh, who are in Stranger Times is that individually there might be sort of, you know, an amusing description, but actually it's when they come into contact with each other. So again, I hope it's not, not a spoiler that, um, Hannah goes for a job at the Stranger Times, the, the newspaper, and she seems relatively normal. And so coming into contact with the, the crazed editor, Bancroft and, uh, and Grace and so on, that actually the comedy comes from when these, these sort of worlds collide. Is that, is that a sort of a fair? Not exactly right. That's one of the, the key fundamentals to that. And you'll see it in lots of, it's a good, it's a good storytelling technique, frankly, where you get somebody from the ordinary world and they come into this weird world and they are our eyes in that world. They are how we meet that world. So um, their reaction is your reaction because you're coming from a world where, you know, ghosts and werewolves and stuff aren't a thing. And then what happens in the stranger times is they, they, they deal with that stuff. They're not saying it's true. And then what happens is they discover in the book, that certain things, it turns out there are magic in the world. That's not much of a spoiler. Um, but but she is the eyes that bring you through. She brings you in because that's the other thing. If you just start off with crazy on top of crazy, it can be, um, it doesn't work as comedy stuff. Like, for example, in the books, there are, um, I write articles that are um, mm. from the Stranger Times. I actually create, um, and they are honestly the hardest things to write in the book um, because Basically, like the 14 times, I'm a big fan. I've literally, I'm sitting in my office now. I've got like 50 copies of the 14 times on my shelf beside me. Um, and if anyone doesn't know the 14 times, the whole idea of the 14 times, the principle is uh, they're not saying anything is true, but they find the uh, ghosts and, and UFOs, all this kind of stuff, all these weird things from around the world, all the int- just fundamentally, these are interesting. It's almost like a scientific thing that these are interesting things. They tell us a lot about humanity. And I think they do. I think the weird things that people believe tell us a lot about who we are as people, which is why also I wanted to write in this area. But the tricky thing with those articles is you have to take like something bizarre and do like a sort of slightly more heightened, ridiculous version of that and put it in the thing. That's really hard to write. It genuinely is. It's like I did a thing where um, I wrote for Mock the Week, which I does not know it's now finished, of course, but I wrote for Comedians on Mock the Week. Rather, I didn't, wasn't on Mock the Week. I was working for Comedians who were on it because it's just a small Mock the Week for you now. Uh, you know, when other people were doing stuff off the, cu- the, 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 the cuff, a lot of it, no. A lot of them had a team of three writers working with them behind the scenes. Um, in fact, I can say this because Gary Delaney said this publicly. Gary Delaney has been on that lots of times. He was one of the most um, regular guests up until a couple of weeks ago. And um, he used to write for other comedians on it. And uh, the first thing he did when they put him on it was he hired three comedians to write for him on it because you get 24 hours with a ridiculous amount of stories and it's just too hard for anybody to do all that stuff on their own. So, yeah. You have comedians, right? But the thing I ended up being very good at on that was uh, they have a caption round where they show you a picture and you have to come up with with, with captions for it. And uh, to be honest, I, I don't know why I was better at that. Maybe just how I process stuff. I was good at breaking down a photograph, finding different things in it and finding the funny to the point where by like after a few years, nobody else really tried to do the captions. They just left that to me because that was always the thing I got. It was like my big thing. And Gary getting a round of applause on Mock the Week for whatever I came up with for the, the caption thing was literally, and I think I had like nine of them in a row because um, that was the thing. He had to say something I wrote and I had to get a round of applause in the room or else I had failed him and he's my best mate. So I took it personally. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I ended up... D- doing all that stuff so yeah there are, i don't know sorry, i've wondered off what was the original question <laughs> well I, I was going to come back to it. it's interesting again so those little snippets at the beginning of each chapter a yes. little sort of new stories um sort of 14 oh, times i've just remembered my point do you want me to finish my point and then we'll go back Please do. so my point is um the bbc asked me to do a course and they wanted to be to show people how to make captions of, of pictures and what they did though the mistake was they got funny pictures like they got a cartoon mm. and i was like this is already a joke you can't find the other joke in this picture. Yeah. It doesn't work. You have to start from normal and heighten. You can't heighten, heighten. It's a really hard thing to do. Sorry, back to you. Uh, well, and is that, again, the bit, the one that I've just read, um, it's 
because they're fantastical, they're 14 times type stories about, you know, um, I forget what it is, but like a football being haunted or something like that is yeah. that that's, that's sort of crazy. But then to make it funny is the response is becoming really mundane. So that's what I think you, you know, in that you've got some fantastical thing and then the person from, you know, Shepton Mallet or somewhere um, just says, oh, well, it's ruining my, you know, it's ruining my day. Or so. so you, it's getting the fantastical wobbling it together with the mundane. And that's kind of where the, 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 the comedy, the humor comes out of, um, uh, I suppose is that maybe an inversion of expectation, which I know is a sort of a core thing with with comedy. Yeah, it's it's pulling pulling the thing back. Like there's, I think there's one of the the stories that are probably one of the best ones is about uh, a loo in Falkirk in Scotland of a to- a, a, a toilet in a, a pub that's been possessed by like or it's given like it's possessed by the devil and it's and it's 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 telling people the world's going to end, giving shortbread recipes. And I think there's a line that where it's criticizing the cooking of the of the <laughs> of the wife. And the whole point was this landlord's getting upset because this demonic entity is upset his wife's given out about the cooking and the rest. Because that's yeah, you have to find a way of making that funny. And it's by bringing the human element into it. I think there's another one where um there's a waxwork uh, museum in Wales because I'm a big fan of bad waxwork. Uh, if you ever just, I love those. Every time we find we have to go, if we see like Madame Tussauds is no fun because most of them look like the right people. That's terrible. We got one where we saw where at, my favorite woman, San Francisco, where Angelina Jolie was clearly Beyonce being resprayed or vice versa. <laughs> it was like incredibly. And myself, and my wife, who's black, and the two of us sitting in front of the going, this might be the most inappropriate, awful thing I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the best thing we've had on holiday. Um, so, but there's one in, I think one in Wales where I had, um, the idea was somebody was clearly uh, biting the necks of waxwork dummies. And the idea was that it was a vampire who was trying to like quit. So, and then, but the, the thing that made it funny was they only, yeah, it was in Wales and they only bit English celebrities. And we're like, we managed to bring in a bit of Welsh nationalism as, as, the, as a thing. <laughs> So again, it's finding the sort of weird thing to do with the weird thing, which is 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 challenging. Yeah, that's it. It's the one that I read that David um, that this a guy has been over has been um, possessed by the ghost of David Bowie. Um, yes, and and this this album burning to get out, but actually the guy's just really annoyed about it. Yeah, he's like a plumber who doesn't like David yeah. Bowie's music. Yeah, yeah, that was that's because like you or me, if you're a Bowie fan, being possessed by Bowie would be great. But this guy, yeah, again, that's the the, the sort of way around it, I guess. So I think um, as well, I, I'm interested in, um, well, I talk about the subjectivity. So this is something that I think more than music, comedy, what makes you laugh is so much more subjective than almost anything else I can think about. What food do you like? You know, if you like this, then you'll like that. I just find comedy is, um, it's hard. So how 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 can you, or how does one, when you're approaching writing something that's funny, do you leave in or not leave in based on, oh, only my wife will like that, only Irish people will get that, or only people who have read this will like it, or only if you have a dark sense of humour will you get this? Where do you kind of, how do you navigate that when writing? Um, I think, honestly, um, if it's if it's a reference most people won't understand, then that's a problem. You have to be careful with your references and stuff. And, you know, my books sell more in America, not by much, but more in America than they do probably the rest of the world. Um, at least the, the 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 bunny ones and stuff, the Stranger Times and all will be bigger in, in Britain and Germany and stuff quite a lot. So there are certain references and stuff you have to be careful with. But it's one of these things kind of where obviously you've got a team of editors and stuff. And it's kind of one of these, my rule is if two people mention something and say they don't understand it, then that's when you go, oh, okay. All right. Maybe I'm, because the first one I kind of ignore and go, well, that's, I, uh, you know, I get it. You do, you always, you have to be, wait, your references can't be too obscure, but at the same time, you do comedy on instinct. I think I said earlier on, I'm about to give an annoying, <laughs> annoying answer. Because my annoying answer was, you know, when people sort of say, how do you write funny? How I write funny is, I write funny. That's just how my brain has always kind of worked, which is, again, a ridiculously annoying answer. I apologize to anyone who's got this far in the podcast to find out that that is, <laughs> it's a terrible narrative thing to go, oh, just does. But it's how my brain works. Like, as I said, the story is how you get from A to B. And that's why, and the style thing is how your brain works because that's how I write it. Like, I tried to write a serious thriller when I said I was going to write a thriller. And in hindsight, I looked at the first chapter and it was a bomb going off in Waterstones and Dean's Gate in Manchester, right? Not a fun topic. I still managed to have a conversation with two people beforehand where there was funny stuff in it because my brain just did that. Um, And as I got more experience for a writer, you kind of like I have beside me uh, in my office where I'm sitting right now, I have a 
clipboard where I've got all it's not clipboard, a, a board on the wall where I've got all the cards where all the chapters from the last book I've just written. And it's like all different colors and stuff. This whole board, very complicated. There's five different colors of cards. There's notes on top of the cards. At no point anywhere in this is there a single joke. This is all story. And literally now I've done, I think my the, the third Stranger Times book and it comes out in February 2023 is going to be my 15th book. Um, and now I understand I don't worry about where funny is going to come in. I worry about the story working and the funny is just frankly how my brain works. So in that situation, generally, it's a good thing. It can be very bad in other situations because I'm the guy who says stuff that you in certain normal situations in life. This is a common problem with mates of mine are stand-up comedians where they have that thing where they go, normally people would have just answered the receptionist question and not saying, whereas you felt the need to try and be funny with it and it made it worse. Um, there's a brilliant bit in Rod Gilbert's latest uh, special where he's talking about dealing with um, himself and the missus trying to have a baby and going into a a reception, you know, for, for having to do all the, the tests you do for fertility. And there's a great bit where he's just talking about the receptionist that he's just panicking and his instincts kick in and he just tries to be funny and then it just gets so much worse because... And that's like, literally, people are laughing. It is very funny. But stand-ups are going, yeah, that's exactly right. That's <laughs> what... And that... That's the important thing that there is you don't you don't do that because you're a stand up. You're a stand up because you do that. If you see what I mean, yeah. that's how your brain works. So you might as well become a stand up because you're never going to get a proper job. Whereas <laughs> you're not going to keep it for very long. But yeah. So it's it's interesting as well, though, how, um, again, they're very different types of being funny and people who are stand ups. Does it necessarily mean that that will translate into funny books and vice versa. Uh, you know, are there people who are able to write um, write things that are funny, but that are not raconteurs? So I'm I, again, that is interesting. I'm really interested in that translation, and which is why again I watched your stand-up whilst reading to sort of, and again, I I don't have the, the vocabulary of the, the specifics of the mechanisms of, of comedy. So I suppose I'm I'm asking you is I'm I'm interested in the things that do and don't translate and how you um are noticing as you're translating if you like from one to the other what's happening when you're um i mean there's different with stand-up and stuff there's particularly different styles of doing it like for example gary delaney to go back to him again as people know him, you can look at him he's got lots of stuff on youtube and stuff he is a proper joke writer one of the genuinely truly best in the world at it for my for my money he writes like people call one-liners which by the way are almost always two-liners a one-line joke is almost almost impossible uh, no, there's, there's a few examples of good ones, but they're very rare. They're almost always two lines or three lines. Um, but Gary does that and he literally will sit there for hours moving words around in one mm. sentence to try and find the best way of doing it. That's pure joke writing. Um, he, he'd be the first to say, he has a book, but it's a book full of jokes. He'd be the first to tell you he couldn't write a, he couldn't write a, a novel to save his life and doesn't want to. And thanks, so I'm not k- killing his career by saying that because his mind doesn't work that way. I think if stand-ups, if they are storytellers, they are much more likely to be better at writing a book. Um, and yeah, like um, Mark Billingham is a brilliant crime writer, um, but he was always a bit of a storyteller as a stand-up comedian. Um, I think interestingly, he's writing, I think there's a book coming out next year that is going to be funny. It's the first one he's written that's actually going to have more funny in it. There's always been a few humorous notes, things, but at the same time, his are really quite dark at times, police procedurals, brilliant books, obviously. Um, so yeah, there are, you know, where someone like, there's a guy, Ian Moore, who's a very good friend of mine, who um, has written a couple of books now, they're doing really well, based in France, about an English guy running a detective agency for, well, a B&B, becomes a detective by accident. Um, but he always told more of a story. So I think if you have a narrative uh, bent, it'll, it'll translate well. Um, but at the same time, prose is a very different thing to writing, even... The biggest thing with TV scripts, between TV scripts and prose, for example, um, TV scripts, you really have no time. You have to go. It has to be fast. It has to be boom, boom, boom. Otherwise, it's just going to cut, cut, cut. Every line has to be working hard in a script, whereas in prose, you have the room, frankly, Mm. to express yourself a bit more. Um, Obviously, you can't meander and lose the reader, but... As long as you get there, I think you have a bit more space and people enjoy that. As And that's ultimately why I prefer writing prose than anything else, because you have the space and you can explore things more easily. I think it was Graham Linehan who said, you know, when he was writing um, sitcoms is if it's not funny and it's not essential information, it's gone. 
yeah you just you just don't have time and, and space so i'm i'm interested as, as well with um to your point about genre that you you know the the aim the the direction of travel is to write a crime thriller or a mystery or, or whatever mm. and that the comedy follows it certainly seems to me maybe it's just a personal thing but it's that darkness is where where comedy comes from so crime the idea of saying the most inappropriate thing at any given moment is that is a funny thing um and so if if someone has if someone has died if there's murders if there are monsters running around then actually you know it's um by making light of that you can i can see the comedy and you know funniness will come from that yeah um, but it's 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 almost a self-defense mechanism i mean there's yeah. like it's a thing you can talk to police and stuff and they deal with so, so much horrible stuff. I couldn't cope with it as a job myself. But the first thing everyone will tell you is that they're always, they have a sense of humor about these things. And there are, and it's one of these things where, and especially in the age we live in, where people, you know, can get, take one sentence and go crazy about it. You have to understand that people in a certain circumstance, um, do have to deal with things in certain ways. And they will say stuff that you go, Oh my, oh my God, how could you say it? And you go, well, I agree, appreciate that line out of context would sound horrible, but you have to understand where we were and people understand what you do and don't mean. Same as frankly, stand-up comedians when they're in a dressing room, because there's a sort of thing where we all understand where the lines are. It's funny to go across the line, understanding that everyone in the room understands that you don't, you know, and it's it. So weirdly stand-ups are the most open-minded people I know as a general rule. Um, but at the same time, you will hear things that you have to understand context. And it's very important in that regard. Um, so, yeah, but there is, I think with crime, I think it works well because you can have darkness. And at the same time, you have to respect, like one of the best notes I ever got is a guy called Scott Pack, who's my editor for my um, bunny books. He was a great editor. And um, he we got him by accident, really, for the first book. We didn't realize how good we just sort of fluked in, fluked, uh, fluked into having a brilliant editor. But his best note ever I got uh, writing was the end of a man when I was facing my first ever book. And he was like, you know, this final scene. Yeah, this joke here, this joke here, this joke here, or line there. All very funny lines. Yeah. Take them all out because the people we care about that you've made us care about for 200 and something pages are in danger. And we want to make sure they're okay. We are following them. So don't undercut the drama by putting it in, which is a fantastic note. You can have funny elements at the end of books and dramatic scenes, but you have to be very careful where they are. And again, it comes back to you have to respect the story. That's always the, the, the key of anything else. If something isn't serving the story, then it has to be gone. If a, if a line is funny, but it's not really fitting, it has to go. And you have to be really disciplined about that. Um, and it's, yeah, otherwise you end up losing your audience or it feels that the suspension of disbelief that comes to reading any fan, anything. If you know someone's trying to be funny, then you read something in a different way. It has to be funny while you're still in the story. You've got to keep them turning the pages first and foremost. That's it. It's really interesting. And I can imagine, particularly if you want to be, you know, you want your, what you're writing to be funny, the, any opportunity, any opportunity to get humor in there, you will. So it's a really interesting note. I wonder if there are any other notes or bits and pieces that you've that you've come across while writing to help um again balance story with humor. Um I think there are like I think you can talk about anything, absolutely. I mean, I had some rules when I started off, but I'm never gonna say about this, this, or this. Um and the thing is they have not all they appeared in my story. It's, um, but I think like you have to respect certain things. Like um, I had somebody retelling something traumatic um, and you have to just respect that and understand that the audience uh, will understand that they're not sitting there just expecting everything to be funny. Um, you do have to always keep that thing. So uh, I mean, general rules with stuff is uh, puns, just great advice or bits or bits of yeah, puns. Um, sorry, go on. puns. I would generally, I mean, people do do some of them. Terry Pratchett has puns, but let's assume none of us are Terry Pratchett. I mean, there's a different <laughs> real set for him. Um, I think warmth between characters. I think the, the big thing I do dialogue is the biggest single thing that really, um, if I don't know who somebody is, I get them in a room and they start having a conversation. And that's where a lot of it comes. All the whole thing is it's the conversations. And I've discovered through my writing, because readers email us all the time and it's always interesting and stuff. And it is, it's the conversations that that draw them in. It's those kind of things. There's like, for example, I'm not particularly great at describing buildings and stuff like that or people's clothing. Uh, and the, the reason I'm, I'm not, I'm really bad at describing people's clothing is I don't care. I am sitting here right now in shorts and a hoodie. 
I wear shorts and a hoodie 11 months of the year because I'm just walking my dog coming home and sitting in my office and writing. So I have no interest. I just, it's not something that interests me. So if like my wife, if I go back into the house now and he goes, oh, you know, what was the person you were just talking to wearing? I'm like, uh, clothes. <laughs> they definitely had fully clothed. They were fully clothed. So my point is, I'm not good at that and I'm not good. At, so I will describe what somebody's wearing if it's important. Um, at buildings and stuff, I will describe, but some authors can do two pages on describing a building. Some authors can do that brilliantly. Um, ben Aranovich is one person that speaks, brings to mind. He's If you ever read his Rivers of London books, he's really invested in the city of London. He, he's fascinated by the whole thing. And it really adds to the story. And it's that London is a character in the book and all that cliche, but it's true. He brilliantly describes stuff. A lot of other authors, frankly, I'm like, okay, I, I find myself skipping ahead going, okay, the windows are this color. Fabulous. Great. Let's get on to what <laughs> is somebody falling out the window. Let's just cut to that. Um, so I, I sort of don't do that because I discovered that rather than trying to make myself better at that, I concentrated on, I was good at dialogue. I come from a script writing background. So I think find the thing you're good at, uh, you know, look at what you write, be able to analyze it and then try and do that. Um, in practical terms, uh, I'm not, again, a massive fan of violence. So, I, But you always have to have fight scenes in a crime book. There's always going to be some kind of thing. Find clever ways of doing it. Come out from different sides. Um, there are, I've had a few different fight scenes that I've written that I really liked, that I'm, pre, that I'm pleased with. And it's always been a way of, I've found a very different way of describing it. It's not just been left hook, right hook, punchy, punchy, punchy. It's been someone talking about their their history or coming in from a weird angle. Uh, I think find a different way of approaching something. So your take on, especially if you're writing a thriller, so, you know, two guys having a fight, that's happened a lot. Uh, do you know what I mean? We've all read that a lot. I find myself increasingly in, in uh, particularly cinema, finding sight, fight scenes typically boring, um, unless they do something like the John Wick films to various degrees um, are, are quite repetitive. The one thing I will say with John Wick films is they are very good at finding a different way of having a fight, which I think is important. Like one of them, I always remember they managed to have a scene where a guy managed to slap a horse's arse and get somebody to be kicked by the horse. And I'm like, if you're going to have a fight, yeah, same as uh, the one that wasn't successful, the uh, Harlequin spinoff of the DC thing, um, Birds of Prey, I think it was called. Um, I really enjoyed that film because it found like they had fights with people on roller skates and using trampolines and stuff. And I'm like, if you're going to have a fight scene, because especially those films, there's so many, find an interesting way of doing it. Yeah. So again, in your writing, f- try and find a different angle. Uh, the golden rule is the, f- the the funniest and best piece of violence you'll ever have is someone getting, frankly, walloped in the nuts in some way. Uh, you can only have one nut shot maximum per book. It's, it's a seasoning. It's not a course. You've got to discipline <laughs> yourself. Just the one nut shot. Um, I mean, outside of that, I would just last... Um, Understand what cliches are. You can embrace them. Like, for example, in, in the Matt, one of those faces, the first book, uh, I have a policeman three days from retirement, which is a click. But I put that in there knowing it was. And literally, he gets annoyed because he's quoting Lethal Weapon to his new partner. He's not getting the references and stuff like that. So <laughs> you can you can embrace cliches of the genre. And actually, what I love doing in my books is... Um, Literally in the like in the in the Dublin books, there's uh, Bridget Conroy is a, a former nurse who's an obsessive about crime books. She's read lots of crime books, um, and she mentions regularly what happens in crime books because I always find it weird. It's like when you're having paranormal things, like in the Stranger Times. My take on vampires was everything that exists about vampires in our world now exists in the Stranger Times because I, I hate it in books. People go someone's bitten somebody's neck. What would do that? And you're like, because like vampires have existed, the concept for it. We have to take all of that out of human history. I would rather sort of deliberately take everything was there and then find a way of subverting it and making it fresh. And if you're doing comedy, a lot of the comedy comes from understanding what the the, the tropes and the cliches are and embracing it and finding a way of literally using that to your advantage rather than disadvantage. I think so Milligan in The Goons, obviously Python did that where you're you're sort of breaking down the fourth wall and you know that everyone knows that we're watching a TV show so you can show the TV set Oh, sorry, you know, the, the 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 set. And of course, that is funny because it's inverting what we expect of television, which is to not see that. Yeah. And so, you you know. I mean, it's one of the big ways I did that is actually the Stranger Times book two is called This Charming Man. I'm not giving anything away, um, but there's vampires in it. But my idea, idea of vampires was um, literally they don't exist in the world. They are a, um, 
a metaphor for powerful beings that are actually running the world. But then they literally get created without explaining how they become come into existence with. All, and, and that was a great way of doing it, which I, I was really pleased with, because I think it's a fresh way where everything existed, like every vampire book is there. But I found a way of like literally they got created, frankly, you know, out of the cliches of cinema and stuff. They got created out of that. Um, and I think if you can find a different way of doing that comedy and anything else, that's the big thing. Try and show people something. Not that they haven't seen before, something they've seen before from a whole new angle. I think yeah. that's that's a great way into comedy and just writing in general. And and you're um, you're talking about violence. There's the scene which I've I've just read again. I hope it's not a spoiler where Moretti is um, being shown around a, a, um, an in, an industrial. Um, room that he might want to rent or buy and is is doing some violence but it's he's doing it in such a sort of a methodical bureaucratic kind of um way rather than the sort of what you would expect from some epic villain um and and that's that's funny because again it's the inversion of expectation yeah exactly you're 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 taking something and twisting it a bit and you can you can the trick is you have to you know because especially with villains and stuff they have to be you know, strong because there has to be the sense of jeopardy. They have to be able to create the real, you know, the sense of fear and stuff. But at the same time, you can have them doing a different take on it. Um, because I mean, I'm I was always a big fan of superhero movies. I'll be honest, the last year, if I'm completely honest, I find myself, I think I'm slightly tapped out on them. <laughs> and I think a lot of the time it's because um villains make those films, I think. I think they really do. Like I love Black Panther, the first film, the second film, not so much, and it's just because the villain was a bit underwhelming. And a lot of those th- those things, when they get it wrong, where it's just a CGI villain and some of the things where it's not, there's no personality to it. It's like, nah, it doesn't hit. Whereas if you get one that's a really good um, thing, it makes, you know, because the villains, almost like villains are the most memorable characters in a lot of stuff. And you can, they're great for comedy. Like, do you remember Alan Rickman in the um, Robin Hood film? Of uh, course. Has, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's like, at least one point he's talking to the the, the women and he's like, you could have a room at nine o'clock. You could have a room at 10 o'clock. You come at 11, bring a friend. And like, it's a, it's an, it's, it's an incredible line. And he, he just, he's chewing senior in that, having a great time, hamming it up and um, being an amazing villain. And that's kind of the memorable thing. Same as Die Hard. He's the thing that makes Die Hard because they had a great villain. Um, and I think that's really important. You have to get the balance right to, and have a really strong villain that holds their own. And also, I'm, I'm interested. Can you do you ever feel like you're circling the funny bit? You know, you you can feel as you're writing the paragraph with dialogue. Your dialogue's amazing. Um, you know, I just I feel the characters, and it's I love how it's kind of naturalistic it is, which again helps the absurd um, uh, that they're, they're talking about. But do you ever feel like you're sort of you're like I, I think there's I'm heading towards something funny, and how much can you sort of move things around, or is it if you don't get it first time that it's gone, or you know do you belabor things or not, and how do you know? Um, I don't. I mean, I'm sort of weirdly I don't. I think like when it, writer's block is the thing I always talk about. I always think when I'm stuck, it's not, there's no such writer's block effectively. I know right, loads of writers say this, they're all right. It's just, I don't quite know what I'm doing. So I will take a bit of time to think something through. But generally what I always do about this pantser plotter thing about how you mm-hmm. think, I always, I'm sort of weirdly in between where I don't need to have everything, but I need certain pieces of the jigsaw puzzle before I start. And then as long as I know what I'm writing, like I write a chapter a day, as long as I know what I'm writing for the next couple of days, then I'm okay. If I find myself not having that, I'll sit down and spend some time figuring out where the story's going um, because I don't ever want to sit down and not know what I'm writing that day. So I always have... And like literally I can sometimes and I write like two bullet points about two things that happen in this chapter. There's always first and foremost, the narrative. Why is this chapter there? And the narrative, something's happening. And every single one of my chapters, something is happening to advance the story. But then, yeah, you find a, a sort of funny way of, of of saying it. But sometimes I don't. Yeah, you kind of fit, you know, on bad days, but you can I think you get the thing down. And then I what I do is I read what I wrote yesterday at the start of the next day. Um, and so sometimes I look at it and go, uh, this is this is a bit clunky, but it will flow a bit better um, when you rewrite it. And then after that, they're kind of things don't get rewritten that much after that, really. I'm, I'm sort of um, I think my drafts end up being quite clean because I'm prepared beforehand and I just re go after it. So, I mean, like, you know, wordings get changed and editors change my terrible spelling and my misuse of words and stuff. But generally uh, the story and stuff stays the same. And the gags typically say the gags, the lines typically mm-hmm. remain 
hit. And it's always one of those things where um, I won't say who it was, but there's a, there's a great uh, someone I know who wrote a book and um, an editor without asking, uh, a line editor edited it um, by moving words around. They were in technically the more correct space. Uh, and this person quite rightly freaked out because he went, that may be grammatically correct. The reason that sentence is that way is because that word is the funny word and that word needs to be at the end. And honestly, the, the level of arrogance by somebody and a big publisher that went, oh, OK, I mean, this person's filled arenas, but I'm going to rewrite this because they don't understand the English language. You go, no, but they understand what funny is. Um, and I always think people, when they say, but worry about writing books, you go, oh, I don't really have the great vocabulary and stuff. You honestly don't need it. Those things, punctuation, everything else can be fixed. If you can tell a story, then you can write a book because that's what people, nobody's ever done a review of a book and gone, uh, the story wasn't much, but my God, was it punctuated beautifully. <laughs> Fundamentally, if people are not understand where the punctuation is, then you've already lost. Like if that's what they're looking at, you've already lost them if that's what they're looking for. And so that's interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering as well, whether when you're reading the previous day's um, writing, whether new ideas, you know, new things that you're like, that would be funny if that happens. Or is it really that if that moment has passed the first time without you thinking this would be a funny thing to say or to do or to have happen? Or do you read the previous day and go, ooh, ah, that would be funny? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can because it's sort of, if it's just in the, if it's the, you can change the route between A to B as long as you end up in the same places. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes, and this is not even just comedy, just a general thing, oftentimes when you're right and you go, oh, that should have happened, if that happened you know, back in chapter 12, then this would make more sense. And that's why I put all these cards up. Um, because if I've found the best way of dealing with that, because that's how, you, when you stop yourself, you go, oh, I should maybe go back. And and I've now got a rule where I just put on a post-it note, slam it up on the wall, on the card, where that chapter is. And I know I need to go back and do that chapter then at the end. But I then write forward, assuming I've already written that in. Okay. Um, and it's just to keep momentum going. Um yeah, so you can always go back and tweak the the, the route. So like stuff will have change in the middle of chapters, but it always ends up generally at the same place. Because again, the one thing like jokes, the chapters, I think um, you need to end a chapter on a pop. Um, it's kind of like jokes. You always need the funny bit at the end. You need to end a chapter on a pop. And I think it's one of these things a lot of authors just sort of do it instinctively. Um, and I think probably from comedy, it was probably helped because that was an instinct I had. But you always want to have that little pop because that that's what gets people to, to go i'll read one more chapter and and that a career is your career comes down to i'll just read i know i want to go to sleep but i'll just read one more chapter if you're getting that you're doing okay you do that really well and i don't want to have any spoilers so i can't say the bits that i'm thinking of but there are things that the particular thing that happens to the editor um uh I, i'm not going to do spoilers we'll um I'll, I'll i'll edit this bit out but i okay. just i just, <laughs> well, I, just I can't remember where, what bit you're right you're towards well, it's it where, where bancroft's playing around with his blunderbuss and then literally at the end of the chapter he puts it on the floor it blows his foot off like just yeah, yeah. great i, I uh, so, someone actually gave me the note on that and said is that a bit too much and i just went back and went no no it isn't <laughs> it's gold it's gold maybe i'll maybe i'll bleep this bit on the um on the podcast but um i just uh, and i wanted to ask this on the end i know we're, we're coming up to the hour um is do you ever get notes where you're, I mean, p- to punch things up is a very sort of Hollywoody type type phrase, but do you ever sort of feel like it's an important bit of information, um, but that you, it's, it's, it's lacking the density of, because it comes rat-a-tat, like the stuff that you're writing when the humour comes in. Um, so do you ever feel like there are bits where you're like, I need to kind of punch this up? Or is are you just like, no, you, again, you're telling a story. Yeah, I think generally I sort of, Occasionally, you go when you're reading back editing, you'll read a chapter and go, eh, "This is a bit." You can feel maybe that there's a little drag here and stuff. Weirdly, I've had that where um, I think everyone's probably had this writing where you do a day's writing, you go, "Oh, that wasn't great," but I just sort of got to the end of the chapter. What I always find interesting, and then the other days you think, "Oh, it was brilliant." Uh, what I always find is um, when you go back and read it the next day, it is never as bad as you thought it was. Or it is never as good. It's weird how you think. Like you literally, if you're ranking it, like you go, "Well, that was a two and that was a ten. And you come back and go, actually, that was a five and that was a seven. You know, they're all sort. You know, so it's never as it's. it's it, a lot of it is it's in your head and it's how you feel in the day. But it's actual the writing generally stays at a reasonably similar standard, I think. Um. So yeah, you you come back and I mean, one of the great things with comedy, you see, this is the thing that I I love about um because crime books in particular, but all books are all about when you tell people stuff. 
like what information you can slip in. And the really great authors can literally give you this information. You get to the end of the book, and go, oh, it was them. And in hindsight, I see that now because of this, this and this, but I didn't know. And that's increasingly hard to do because readers are really clever. You know, we all, we all understand the language of stories in ways that we don't even realize. I'm convinced people today understand the language of story much better than people would have 30 or 40 years ago because of all the TV dramas and stuff we've all seen. Um, they just educated us while we're watching without you realizing. So we all just get better at understanding where things are going. The great thing with comedy is you can tell someone a piece of information and it can look like it was there because it was a funny line. And if you can, it's a great way of slipping it in without somebody really realizing why that piece of information is there. And one of those times where if you can get that to work, then you feel great because that you go, oh, that's the best of what I could do is when I can get those two things. And it's not something that happens all the time, but when it does, oh, that's a good day. And uh, just to, just to sort of finish off as well, how much of you know, writing things that are funny, how much of it's about confidence? Because I feel like it's one of those things where you can kind of learn to sing, you can learn to play an instrument, um, you can learn to write a novel, but I just feel like humour is something that is one of the hardest things to teach. And so how much of it's about confidence to just say, you just try and, you know, if you think something's funny, put it in. Yeah, I think, you know, trust your instincts and then you've got to get people who read, you know, read your stuff and can direct you. Like my, my wife is uh, like reader zero, if I do really call it. She reads everything. Um, and she will generally tell me if something is, you know, or something she does or doesn't like. But yeah, you have to have confidence. I mean, I remember when I wrote my first book, God over two, two friends of mine and my wife were reading chunks of it as I went along because I think I needed reassurance. Um, so that's when I started showing people, is this, is this any good? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's good. Keep going. Um, and then weirdly, after I wrote the first book, I have never shown anything that's been incomplete to anybody um, ever again, because like, I think writing the first book, the best thing writing your first book does for you is teaches you you can write. You know what I mean? As I'm, you're sitting there going, this might not be great, but I'm going to finish the whole thing because that's how you judge stuff. You don't judge stuff on an individual. You need to see the whole thing as part of the story. It's like if you're looking at it as a painter, if you zoom in on a piece of a painting, you might look at the brushwork or something, but it's really not telling you much. You need to look at the whole thing and then it un- you understand it. But yeah, I think there is a confidence thing. And obviously, you know, um, for better or for worse, I've had a long old career now where I've done lots of different stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, like literally The Stranger Times, talking about confidence, The Stranger Times, I wrote a sitcom uh, based called The Stranger Time. Or the, the strange, Yeah, something. Oh, The Strange Times. That was it. Um which was supposed to be the net, which had to change because uh, there's a band or something called that. But um, basically, I wrote that. Oh my god, 15 years ago for my for my um, then agent, and they didn't really click with them. They never sent it to anybody. Um, and then, literally, when I got asked when I had an agent and stuff, and like they wanted to see, but something else they wanted to do, I woke up one morning, got in the shower, remembered that sitcom I wrote all those years ago, and went, "Yeah, I really like that." And then I was like, yeah, then we're right to do. And then I started thinking about it. I was literally walking to Manchester to my writing office at the time. And I love Manchester, which is where I live, by the way, uh, which is where that's set. And I was like, oh, it should be here. And as well as things, but by the end of that 20 minute walk, those two things, Manchester and that idea. And I had to run up the stairs in my, in my <laughs> thing to start getting, oh my God. And I had all the ideas. And this was the thing. And I was, by the way, supposed to be coming up with a quote unquote serious crime novel. Because that's what everyone said. He said, you should write a serious crime novel now. And I remember write, like, I went back to the two agents I was talking to at the time and I told them both the idea. Um, and the one, Ed is my agent now, is a great uh, agent. And he went, that sounds fantastic. You should always write what you think is best. Um, I thought, right, you're going to be my agent. Um, <laughs> and then I, and I wrote that. And it was just because, and again, like at the time that got ignored and stuff, but then I'd written a few books and I went, no, that's a good idea. And by the end, I literally, and I, I didn't come in and sort of ask my agent, should I think I should write this? I was like, I'm going to write this. And then both of them sort of reacted to it. And I went, right, well, you're my agent because you understand that that's what's going to happen now because I got the confidence from doing the other things. But it is one of those sort of fake it until you make it things. Um, with all, right, with stand-up and stuff like that, confidence is a big part of it. But um, I think the trick is just give yourself the time, write it. You can, like, nothing's carved in stone. You can always rework it. Like everything, the, the most encouraging thing I can tell you about stand-up comedy, but right, comedy writing in general you know how everyone looks so effortless? And I talked about Joe Lysett and that was a different thing, but people talk about how effortless it is. Um, I've been around some really good comics and seen them working. The most reassuring thing I can tell you is they all work really hard. That off the cuff thing that you think somebody's just said while they're standing in front of 5,000 people, 
No, they worked it and they reworked it. Even when they work with the crowd, like someone like Dara Breen, who's an incredible comic. I love Dara's work. He does a lot of work where he's genuinely bouncing off the crowd. First and foremost, he's been doing that for a long time. He always had a good skills, but he developed it and he thought about what he was doing. And, and I've actually seen how Dara breaks it down where he asks a question to the crowd. He has a system of like coping with the answers, generally reacting to them. But then also you think about it and later on. And then if that comes up again, you have something prepared for it and stuff. Ross Noble, people always talk about how an amazing improviser he is, the ultimate improviser. And he is incredible. But I remember talking to somebody who used to run the gig he started off with in Sheffield. And he said the most incredible thing about him is someone would say something. He'd do a bit about it. And weirdly, for a guy with dyslexia and can't write notes and stuff, because he's quite a beef severely dyslexic, um, what he said is what he has is the most amazing mental Rolodex, where literally something will pop up, two random things come together, and everyone thinks, well, this is completely random. But he goes, I remember eight, 10 years ago when I was sitting this small little gig, this came up, I did something with this, and then he goes with it and ex- explores it further, and all what he thought about it afterwards comes in. And even he play, downplays the, the improvisation because it's actually the ability to build things off what happens in the moment. So, yeah, my point is all the really great people do work hard. You can outwork the opposition, I guess, is my, my thing. Great, fantastic. That's so much great advice there. I think on one of the things that's the hardest things to do in, in writing um, and to, to be able to sort of pull back the magician's curtain, if you like, a bit to show us a bit of the, the craft and give us some great advice. So thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure been an absolute delight thanks for having me if you have questions or want to get in touch you can find us on instagram and twitter at writer center and you'll find us on facebook by searching national center for writing don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcenterforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop down box on the homepage. as a uk registered charity we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible You can make a donation over on the website today by hitting the support us button in the top nav. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us because it helps other writers to find the podcast. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.